Well, I have the privilege this morning of batting cleanup in our Second Peter series. And Peter has addressed questions that are as relevant today as they were to the first century. People still object to the Bible as the written authoritative word of God. They still question whether God will judge every person. They still doubt that Jesus is returning a second time. And they have, of course, reasons why they believe that. I discussed two of those objections with people in the last two weeks. So these issues are alive and well, even in Lafayette, Indiana. But Peter also gave us reasons why we should have courage and confidence that our beliefs are correct and that our beliefs need to then influence how we live. And I love that about the Bible. It not only provides solutions to the problems, but then tells us what we ought to do about it. So we have no reason to back down from presenting our worldview because we have the best one, the one that explains all the others. In fact, we can defend our faith, avoid falling into the trap of false teaching, and experience Christian growth all at the same time. Well, if it's true that the biblical beliefs that we have are accurate, that we can live confidently, and that we should experience spiritual growth, then would you agree with me that there's often a gap between what we say we believe and how consistently we apply it in daily life? Would you agree there's a gap there? I know there is for me. You know, it's so much easier to say things like, one of my main jobs as a husband is to love my wife like Christ loves the church. But to do so consistently and with joy is not as easy. I think we would agree that parents are expected to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But it's a whole lot harder to do it 24-7, 365 for 18 straight years. I believe, I think you do as well, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're celebrating communion this morning. And what more evidence could we possibly have for why that should be true? And yet it's easier to say than it is to do. So dealing with this gap between our beliefs and our behavior is the subject of the message this morning. And I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The title of the message is The Kind of People God Wants Us to Be. And this is part of our series on growing in grace and knowledge through the book of 2 Peter. And we're going to see this morning three responses to man's eternal destiny. So please follow along, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. This is the word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just also as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom God given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand... Be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Well, what kind of people does God want us to be? First, to be sober because of God's final judgments. To be sober. It says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Pastor Byers ended the message last Sunday focusing on God's patience. People say the world keeps moving as it always has. Is Jesus really returning? And our answer is yes, he is. But the Lord isn't slow in fulfilling his promises. Rather, the Lord is patient, desiring that all come to repentance. And as long as a person draws breath and the Lord does not return in judgment, an opportunity remains. So God's patience is a blessing. But at the same time, verse 17 told us to be on our guard. That's why we use the word sober to emphasize wisdom, clear-headedness, the ability to see right from wrong in a moment. He says, don't be fooled. Don't fall away. Don't get convinced that they have a point and they may, in fact, be right. Because in that case, you would be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. He says, don't go there. Don't start thinking that they, they're right, there is no God, and there are no promises to keep. Says God's patience explains his delay. Because when he chooses to stop being patient, the opportunities are gone. And he describes for us what the final judgment in the second coming of Jesus looks like. And he starts by saying, Well, it's like a thief. It's timing, it's like a thief. You know, thieves do not announce their crimes in advance. They break into stores when they're closed. They enter homes when no one is there. I mean, this is Indiana after all. There are more guns than people. So if a thief announced his presence, I'm going to be at your house at 11 o'clock on October 23rd. Either the police would be there or every member of the family would be armed and dangerous. See, like a thief explains its suddenness. The Lord isn't wanting people to perish, so he's patient. So much so that people begin to convince that, well, it's not going to happen. 
But see, the Lord's judgment comes when people aren't anticipating it. And then there are no more opportunities. For us, let's not get wound up about the current events as if they're ushering things in more rapidly. You know, Russia developed a helicopter. Or there's another conflict. Or the world is getting more wicked. Pray for those things. Maybe even do something about it. But we are one day closer to the return of Jesus than we were yesterday. And whether another conflict starts today and the Lord should tarry his coming, we will be only one day closer tomorrow. Why is that true? Because he says, I'm going to come like a thief. I'm going to come when no one is expecting it. The final judgment will catch the unbelievers by surprise. And there won't be time for change. Then he describes for us its intensity. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed. The earth will be burned up. This is destruction at an incomprehensible level. If you happen to be one who enjoys following the climate change slash global warming discussions, then you know that everyone's talking about two degrees Celsius. If the earth warms by two degrees Celsius, then we will have devastating consequences to the way our world works. Now, regardless of whether you think it's simply climate adjustments over long periods of time or whether humans have anything to do about it, I don't care about that. I want us to notice this. The Bible is not talking here about a simple climate change. It's not talking about whether Indiana will grow corn and beans or whether we're going to be a rice paddy. We're talking about God lighting up the place. We're talking about looking at a telescope and seeing something different. We're talking about changing the periodic table. For those of you who are just convulsing because I made a chemistry reference. We're not just talking about simple adjustments. We're talking about our world being rewritten. It's destruction as we can only imagine. And then what's its result? What's the result of this destruction? It's the loss of opportunity for repentance. I recently finished Revelation during my personal Bible reading time and once again was reminded of the speed and intensity and devastation of the final judgment. The earth, sky, universe as we know it passes away and it's replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. If you're here this morning and you don't know that you know that you know that you are on your way to heaven through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ then there's no more important preparation for Christ's return that you can make other than trusting in his finished work for your salvation. Final judgment comes as a thief. You don't know how long you have. Jesus may return. Our life might be cut short. We never know how long we actually get to live, and the gospel message is so simple. The Bible teaches that we are sinners. 
We have violated God's commands. And it doesn't mean that a person is as bad as they possibly could be. It means they have violated God's standards. And so he sent his son to live a sinless life, to die on the cross, to satisfy the father's wrath against sin, to be buried, to rise again on the third day. And you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And I invite you to trust Christ as your personal Savior right here, right now. Friends, God's judgment is certain. The day of the Lord is coming. And it comes when people are unsuspecting and unprepared. Now, a second proper response is to be looking for ways to make your eschatology practical. Since the Bible is God's word, we care what it says. We want to know the details of the end times Not only because we're curious, but because we want to know our Bibles. But knowledge alone is not sufficient. As I mentioned in the introduction, our behavior is not always as good as our belief system. And the Lord wants our belief in the return of Christ to make a difference in how we live. Notice what he says in verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. So if what he said is true, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Peter's writing to believers. He said, I hear the objections too. I know that the unbelievers will say it takes, it's taking too long. I get it. But God's judgment is coming. And when it comes, it's going to be devastating. And so therefore... Therefore, this is how you should live in light of that reality. He says, first of all, live with holy conduct. That's an outward behavior. You see, it's possible to conclude based on the severity of the judgment. Well, fine, if that's what's going to happen, then let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But Jesus' followers were to live differently than that. He wants our lives to match what we believe. And so here's just a few illustrations of that. I mentioned husbands. It's a whole lot easier for us to say that God wants us to love our wives like Christ loves the church and then not live it out. So if we believe that there's an aspect where we're not fulfilling that command then we ought to do something about it. Our wives ought to look back over their years with us and say that we have been good to them, that they have been blessed by choosing to do life with us, and that they thank the Lord that he gave us to them. Well, to the degree that that's not true, pick one area one way that you could love as Christ loved the church and do something about it. That's the message that Peter gives. He he doesn't just say, okay, believe in the final judgment and then just sit back and wait for it to happen. Sit in your rocking chair, enjoying the beautiful scenery, and wait for the hailstones to start. 
He says, instead, live with holy conduct. Be this kind of person. Wives, you know you're called to submit to and respect your husbands. But sometimes this is a person's real view of submission. I will tell you what I want. You will give me what I want, and then I'll submit to you. Your words, wives, hurt more than other people's words. Because he cares more about your words than he cares about other people's words. And so maybe, maybe your husband needs to be corrected in some area to get some adjustment, some change needed to happen. But I hope those words of correction are balanced by hundreds of words of thanks and appreciation. And if that's not true, then pick one area and start changing it today. Children, you know you need to obey the Lord and you need to obey your parents. But you don't like all their rules. And your friends don't have them. And so you think, you know, my friends don't have these rules. These rules are dumb anyway. So I'm not going to live them out. Well, to that degree, you're also not living out your role before the Lord. And it's time to change. It's time to develop some humility, some submission, and some appreciation. And I realize whenever I speak like this, some of you are thinking, man, I sure hope my wife heard that. I sure hope my husband heard that. Man, there's even a side of you that wants to look right at your children and say, did you just hear what pastor said? But let's, let's think about it for us. Let it be for us. Let the word and the spirit bring conviction to your heart and mine. Let it just be between you and the Lord The Lord wants us to see that the final judgment is not just a truth to be believed, but it's actually a motivation for how to live. You know, in a few minutes, we're going to do communion together. Where we read 1 Corinthians 11, where it says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The ordinance communicates something. By taking it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And so it looks backward to his death, burial, and resurrection, and it looks forward to his return. It ought to influence, then, how we live. He said godliness, holy conduct, and godliness. If there's a difference, then this word may emphasize one's heart attitude, where it's actually something that we want. We want to be close to the Lord. We want to grow in our relationship with him. We want to pray without ceasing because we want to have him with us as we experience our day. It's an outward lifestyle that properly reflects what's also inside our hearts. The text went on 
to give this view a, a balanced outlook. How should we live? A, a balanced outlook. Notice what verses 12 and 13 say. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. If we think about these words practically, then they're both bitter and sweet. They're sweet because on the one hand, this is great news. There's a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. No more battles of the flesh with the world, with Satan and his host. No more sin in me or around me. The end of Revelation describes the glories to come. When Jesus will make all things right, no more tears, no more pain, no more dying or death, no more sun, no more difficult work because of the curse. And we look forward to that. We look forward to being released from the challenges that exist today. But there is another side. And I suspect that we all have family, co-workers, neighbors, friends, who do not yet have a saving relationship with Christ. And at the final judgment, Christ separates his followers from those who do not believe. And there is no rescue at that point. I think one of the most sobering passages is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. He says to the church, you're going to be delivered. And all those who have been on your case about how foolish you are, those who have in one way or another made life hard, now it's their turn to get it. Now it's their turn. Justice is coming. And when that justice comes, notice what it says, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. If they won't listen and they won't respond in obedience to God regarding the gospel message, then this is the consequence. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. That's a hard reality. Those who reject the gospel pay the penalty of, the words were, eternal destruction. And so we know that judgment is coming. And we're trying to do all we can to warn the unbelieving. And I hope one of the things that's true in your heart is that you would be interested in evangelizing the people around you. Because you're thinking to yourself, you know what? If I'm on my way to heaven, I want to take as many people as I can with me. I want as many joining me as possible. I hope that's part of your heart. Because that's the consequence of 
this truth. Believing in the final judgment encourages us to live holy, but it also encourages us to be motivated by, what about those who don't? What happens to them? I hope that's true in your heart. I also hope that you take advantage of some of the structures that are in place in order to help you to evangelize. You know, we have a number of them in our church calendar. You know, the whole issue of trunk or treat coming up on Saturday is an opportunity to speak to our neighbors. We know that some are just going to come for the candy. We get it. There'll be 25 Satans come to the church house on Saturday. We, we get it. All right, they have little kids dressed up as, you know, all sorts of things. But they might be spiritual needs too. And there might be people who might be interested to know that at least one church cares about that. You know, Christmas for everyone is coming up. We buy gifts for people we've never met. I suspect that most of us who have participated in Christmas for Everyone over the years will never meet the people who receive the gifts that we give. But our prayer is that the gifts would encourage them to believe something else, would awaken their hearts to a coming judgment. You know, living nativity is our attempt to share the entire story with people, with as many people as possible. There's even a second coming scene. And the goal is, on the one hand, to encourage believers, to help them to have their families come through and enjoy the experience, but also to serve as a warning. You know, as you drive through as an unbeliever, you just see the lights on and people just show up. Oh, I saw the lights. I decided I want to come check it out and see what it was. They walk through, drive through. The final scene is the return of Jesus. And it's our hope that God would awaken their heart in that moment and say, if Jesus is returning, am I ready for that return? That's what it means to have a balanced view. On the one hand, you are excited, you are energized yourself about the coming of the Lord. But on the other hand, there's a side of you that's saying, I know this is coming, and I don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to come as a thief, and when it comes, the people who haven't responded yet are not going to have time. And so I'm going to do what I can to help them see their need before it's too late. We also find diligent preparation. Verse 14 says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So this describes the condition. Now back to the believer. Of what we should be like at the return of Christ. I love the word peace. Referring to a settled and confident state of mind in the promises and relationship with Jesus. You know, some souls are so noisy. They are wound tight about this, that, or the other thing. 
you know, Christians are supposed to be, well, we're all good. Because we have peace with God. And through prayer, we can experience the peace of God that surpasses understanding. So rather than being wound tight, super discouraged and unhopeful, we're the exact opposite. Our theme this year has been hope for everyday life. Because we believe we ought to be the people who have more hope than anyone else. And as people see hope in us, they then ask, like, what's wrong with you? Why do you have hope? It doesn't seem like anything's getting better. Why don't you have hope? Well, it's because of our relationship with Christ. That's why we have hope. So we're ready to give an answer to those who ask. The categories of spotless and blameless are not radically different than the phrases we've already heard about holy conduct and godliness. And we're to be putting effort into that. Let's be people who are like this, so that when Jesus returns, we know it's coming. And so we're saying, well, when the day comes, when the dawn arises, then here's what's to be true. He would find us at peace, spotless and blameless, in our conduct. Then humble appreciation should be true of his followers. Humble appreciation should be true of his followers. Why? Regarding the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. See, he comes back and says, Paul wrote about this exact same thing. We're we're writing about the same stuff. That this is how we think about God's delay. We think about it as patience. In other words... What if the Lord decided to end his patience before you understood your need for Christ? I think that's what he's emphasizing here. We are the recipients of God's patience. We are the recipients of his word. And so we know that not everything is easy to understand, but boy, can we appreciate, we can appreciate what he's actually given us. Believing that Jesus returns and brings judgment has practical implications for what we should be like. It's not just a truth to be believed. It also sets a motivation for how we're supposed to live and function. And the certainty of final judgment encourages us to be clear-headed able to understand what is happening, not easily fooled. And at the exact same time, it serves to push us to live more faithfully to Christ. Because we understand, well, if today is the day, then let me be found at peace, spotless and blameless. Then third, 
be committed to a consistent pattern of growing. It says in verse 18, and this is the verse that describes the theme of the entire series. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. And so there is a focus in this passage on growth. The book ends essentially where it began. Peter tells us that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We have what we've been given in order to live godly. And he was honest. He said, now that I've told you that, let me be honest with you. You're going to face opposition to this. People will discredit the Bible. They'll say there is no coming judgment. They'll say Jesus isn't returning. And Peter says we don't have to be intimidated by that. We stand firm in our faith. We know that Jesus' coming will come like a thief. And when it does, devastation occurs. That's why we focus on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This goes back to, I said that it it brings full circle right back to the beginning. Because notice what he had told us early on. Remember our summer series? The summer series unpacked these verses like one word at a time. Now for this very reason, because we have been provided everything we need for life and godliness... He says, apply all diligence or make every effort to in your faith. And he's speaking there of our saving faith in your saving faith supply. And here they are in many ways, just returning back to the theme that he ends with in chapter three, verse 18, moral excellence. And in your more excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. He comes right back around and says, this is exactly what I'm asking from all of us. We need to learn about our Savior's grace. And here's a couple ways to actually accomplish that. The first is to end your day by reflecting on God's grace for the day. Some days are hard, and yet you look back and say, but God's grace was there, and here's how it was. Some days, God gives you so much effort, energy, and accomplishment, you're like, man, this is amazing. Did you see how much got done today? And it was because of God's grace. So one is personal reflection on a daily basis. How is God's grace being played out in my life today? Here's another. On November 19th, we have our stewardship celebration. We do a stewardship month that starts next Sunday, and we do a stewardship celebration at the end of it. And the whole point of stewardship celebration is to proclaim the greatness and grace of God. We're saying as a church family, let's reflect for a whole evening on what it has been for God's grace to play out in our church family corporately. And you just sit back 
at those stewardship celebrations and think, wow, I didn't even know that was happening. Wow, I didn't know that was happening. Wow, I didn't know that was happening. You know, some things are very visible. You drive in the parking lot and you can see the addition to the school being built. It's very clear. But other things are more hidden. Like what's happening out at Restoration or over at Vision of Hope or what's taking place at the Harvard Hub or even what's happening at Faith West. Many of us just wouldn't know. And that's an opportunity to reflect on God's grace in the bigger picture. We also need the knowledge of Christ. And these, is it fair to say that the more that I'm growing in God's grace, understanding his grace, and knowledge of who he is, the more likely it is that I will also extend grace to those around me. That I will more likely talk more about Jesus than I'm talking about other things. That I will more likely value and appreciate what God is doing in my life and the lives of those around me. How much more likely will it be that I will be at peace, that I will be blameless and spotless, that I will have the ability to look across my world and on the one hand value and appreciate Jesus' return and on the other hand be concerned about those around me who do not yet have a saving relationship with Jesus. Then the verse ended by longing for his glory. Longing for his glory. Well, you know, I didn't read this last portion of verse 8 of chapter 1. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It ends up producing fruit. Then it's a longing for his glory. If we put this passage into practice so that our behavior will be excellent, if we're married, that we will be a joyful spouse and we will have a joyful spouse as a result of being married to us, if we have a job that will be a diligent worker, a joyful person to be around, for a child, then we're easy to parent rather than difficult to parent. If you're a friend, to be easy to get along with rather than difficult. Then it's very likely that people will say, man, ain't you something? You are a nice person to be around. I like you. And here's where we have to say, I'm not going to let any of this glory go to me. It belongs to God. So if I have the privilege and opportunity of living out this way, then by, it's by his grace and it's for his glory that it happens. And so when people compliment us, we can thank them, acknowledge them for their kindness, but we need to give glory to the Lord. And I'm not just talking about verbal. Because sometimes we can give glory to God verbally, but in our hearts say, yeah, and ain't I something. We give it to him in our hearts and with our voice. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the 
opportunity to reflect and think about the influence of your truth on our life. Lord, we know that your word promises that you are coming back. And when you do, then destruction follows. And Lord, we understand that we, on the one hand, get the privilege of experiencing the new heavens and the new earth. And on the other hand, we know that those who refuse to follow Christ and obey the gospel suffer eternal destruction. So would you help us to live with that kind of balance? Would the truth of the second coming motivate us to live godly lives? Lord, we thank you for the chance now to sing, to, re- to reflect on what you have instructed us to do. But then we're also thankful, Lord, to participate in communion, which makes all of it possible. And so we ask that you would use our time this morning, that we might grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.